Christmas 83, watching television, we saw the Lawrence of Arabia film. And I just knew, I thought, nobody's climbed those three mountains. Welcome to the third episode of Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast. In this episode, we're speaking to Tony Howard. Tony is a climber, tracker and guidebook author and for over 30 years has been visiting Wadi Rum in Jordan. In this episode, Tony talks about growing up in Yorkshire, a brief stint on a whaling ship, the first descent of the Troll Wall in Norway and establishing climbs and trekking routes in Wadi Rum, often living for weeks or months with the Bedouin tribesmen. This podcast is proudly supported by Firepot Food and if you're interested in checking them out, there's a discount code in the show notes from this episode at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. Okay. Over to Tony. Well, we're living now in uh, in Greenfield, Stanworth, north end of the Peak District, which is where I was born and grew up. By the time I was about... Different, it was a different world back then, actually. There were very few cars around. There was one car on where I lived, and the three sides were fields and old-fashioned farmers with horses and carts and all that stuff. Everything, milk and such was delivered by horses and carts. It was a quiet little village, and... Today, of course, it's a lot busier, but it's surrounded by great stone crags, which always attracted me and my mates when we were young lads. And we used to go up on the moors and go, it wasn't called bouldering then, we were just playing on the rocks kind of thing. And then one day, I think I was about 13 or 14, um, we spotted some climbers, never seen climbers before, but we knew they were climbers because they had a rope. And we were down in the valley, them by the river but there was some climbers up on the cliff and we hurried up to see what was going on but they'd gone when we got there but they'd left a book at the bottom of the crag and it was a guidebook never even knew they were climbing guidebooks look read it thought these are our cliffs and there's climbs here with names and grades and fantastic and that was when it all kicked off really and uh and in fact i was still i was out climbing on one of those cliffs yesterday so it's been a you know, a lifetime of fun just living here without actually going anywhere. It's, that was our door to the outside world. Amazing. And how were you introduced to kind of wider adventures and the bigger world? Um, one of the, well, ah, well, there's a good and bad story here because when I was 18, um, my uncle was involved. He was a PR man down on Fleet Street, but he was involved with a whaling company, Christian Salverson. And I'd got an opportunity to go on a whaling ship to the Antarctic, which these days would be terrible. You wouldn't do it. Nobody would do it. Those days, going whaling was just like going fishing. Nobody thought twice about it. So I jumped at that opportunity. Uh, and I went down on a, on a whaling ship on the Southern Venture from Great Ham, down to the Antarctic for six, six months. Um, but because I'd been at grammar school and passed me all levels and A-levels, I was asked if I wanted to work in the ship's hospital, uh, which I did, and that's what I did for six months. Uh, it, was, it was a Norwegian company, so I met lots of Norwegian whalers, and they'd all come down from the Lofoten Islands and remote places in the north of Norway. And I got to know, they said, oh, you should come up to the fort, great climbing up there, you'll really like it. So a few years later, we that was our first trip from our local climbing club, and we went climbing up in the Lofoten Islands. Um, on our way, we hitched with very little money, with no money at all by the end of the trip. We hitchhiked back down through Norway 
Uh, deliberately went to Ronsdale because we'd heard about this massive troll hall thing. Thought we'd have a look at that, see what it was like. Uh, never saw it because the cloud was down and it was raining, which should have been a warning, really, but it wasn't. <laughs> uh, so that was our first climbing trip. <clears throat> we did all the went to the Alps, went to the Dolomites, went climbing in Morocco on tube car, went down to the south of Morocco after winter, winter climbing on tube car to get some sun, and uh, discovered Taff Root, which is now really popular, but I think we were probably the first climbers into tough route and uh, and then from there after the Alps and the Dolomites removed up went back to Norway and uh, lucky enough to make the first ascent of the troll wall simultaneously with a Norwegian team so we were climbing parallel and the press made a big deal out of climbers compete for the summit and all that stuff but they were good lads, they were just friends, they were doing their route. We had no idea where they were, because no means of communication. So they were climbing their route, and we were climbing our route. And as it happened, they topped out uh, late one afternoon, and we topped out the morning after. And they were there in the valley waiting to meet us and party time. So that was my first few years of climbing, the first ten years of climbing. And what was it? like on the whaling ship? I was assigned on as a mess boy. Um, so basically I was serving food to the whalers and getting to know everybody. And that takes about three or four weeks to get down to South Georgia. By the time I'd got there, the doctor had spotted my school CV and I swapped jobs and became the hospital assistant. Um, so I had a cushy number really. Um, Spent lots of time watching what was going on on deck with all the flames in, cutting the whales. Saw the catchers catching whales off the factory ship. Um, so saw all that stuff. Did some, I didn't do any operation, but I helped with various operations. Uh, one guy fell out of the crow's nest on a, on a catcher and smashed and landed on the bulkhead and smashed his ribs, burst his spleen. And he was brought into the ship's hospital, we had to shut shut the engines down so the ship wasn't rolling as much and did a huge, massive operation, took, I forget, eight or nine hours of operation time. Um, and then I had to nurse my job to, I was doing the operation and the doctor said, you can't, first of all, I had to cl clean the room. Not something I'm particularly good at cleaning things, but anyway, I did my best. Then I had to help with the operation. Um, he said, you count everything in and you count everything out. And when we're, do when we're done, he says, is that everything? <laughs> Serious question, you know, maybe, I don't know, I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I think so. He said, is it or isn't it? You know, I said, yeah, it's everything, yeah. But I landed and I had to nurse him back until uh, every about once a month, oil tankers would come down and offload all the oil, whale oil, and he was shipped back to the UK. Strangely, two years ago, I've got some friends in Shetland and I was up there and he said, oh, I know a guy who worked on the same whaling ship as you. So I got talking to him and he said, have you ever met Peter Gillies again? The man who'd felt I said, no, I've no, I, you know, never heard from him. He says, well, he lives in Malag. So we went down and knocked on his door and 
<laughs> the shock of his life. It was a long letter for him, from him afterwards saying how nice it was to meet up and da 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 da. da. Yeah, it's brilliant. He was okay then. Yeah, yeah, he lived. He survived despite my. <laughs> so why do you think you went? Why? What, what was the allure? Uh, the adventure of it all. I mean, I'd, I'd read about Shackleton and Scott and Moby Dick and all this stuff. The Antarctic. I mean, who got to go to the Antarctic in 1958? 18 years old, you know. It was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity yeah, to, to go down there. And then to the Troll Wall then? Yeah. <laughs> so tell me a bit about the Troll Wall. Um, well, we're a bunch of local lads. Um, not particularly outstanding climbers. Reasonably good. One of the lads was very good. Um, Tony Nichols. We, we corresponded with a lot of people about Norway, trying to get more, because we hadn't seen it. All we'd seen was mist and rain. Uh, everybody said it's impossible, da 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 da. Uh, and in fact, one guy who knew quite a lot about Norway, when we came back, he uh, and there's a lot of stuff in the magazines, he wrote a letter to Mountain Craft magazine and said, there's no way we could have done it, we must have found a way up the back because it was impossible. <laughs> and, it, and in the end, it never got published because the editor realised, you know, this guy was mistaken. But we were just a bunch of unknown lads who went and did it when other people could have done it, but they, I don't know why they hadn't considered it. Yeah, it's amazing. And how old were you in that? I was 25. Um, the others were like 23, 22, 21. What made you feel like you could? Um, I don't think we knew we could, but it was there. We could get there easily without a lot of money. Why not go and have a look? Give it a go. <laughs> it panned out OK, I guess. Yeah, it did. I mean, it was dodgy because we had some atrocious, wet, really bad weather on it. And we, we came down after what third or fourth day on the first attempt, and Nick, he really tried. We were climbing down through waterfalls of of ice, meltwater, and it was snowing and sleeting. We, we were soaked to this because waterproofs weren't waterproof, bivy tents weren't waterproof, soaked to the skin. Sleeping bags were wet. Everything was wet, um, and we couldn't stay up any longer because we would have died basically. But we had to climb back down through waterfalls. And I tried to get through the last one and couldn't. And Nick got through, but his hands were so bad, he couldn't go back on the wall. So that just left three of us. It wasn't a good number. But anyway, the weather improved. So we had to go. And it panned out. It was a really, really good climb. <laughs> that sounds amazing. So you're getting into your mid-twenties. Yeah. You're getting quite a lot done, you know, you're yeah, achieving, yeah. you know, yeah. high calibre stuff. Yeah. Where did you go from there? Um, started Troll, which people might not have heard about today, I don't know, but the Troll became the top climbing company in the world, probably, certainly in the UK for climbing, webbing equipment, climbing harnesses in particular. Uh, and I was the designer. Um, and... Yeah, Troll became first well-known because of the Willens harness. Don came, they were doing on a perm, 71, 72. Um, they needed a harness for dew with heavy gear. 
he'd got an idea, a basic idea, and we improved on it over a few months. And that became really popular. There were lots of people who said, oh, trust in tape and terrible thing. Uh, but it became world popular. And we sold thousands of them. And then about uh, 72, about five or six years later, uh, other people were starting to design harnesses. I think Wild Country was the next with the Pat Littlejohn. And we thought, better do something about this. <laughs> Pull our finger out and do something. And I came up with what was called the... Oh, I'd done the Troll Mark II before the Willans. Then the Willans came. And then we did the Troll Mark V because I'd played around with various modifications. But that harness... Any, almost any harness you pick up today is a duplicate of the Troll Mark V. It's like that was the, the template for all modern... With a B-layer loop at the front, leg loops, waist belt, gear racks... That came out of Troll. So even the sewn slings came from Troll. You know, the four foot and eight foot sewn slings. That was our design. So, and that lasted 30 years, designing. And that was how I lived from then on. Because before that, I'd just been odd jobbing, really. I'd been worked as a driller up in the Yukon for two years. Uh, did a thousand mile canoe trip through uh, Arctic Canada. Didn't see anybody for, with two, just the two of us on an old gold, gold rush route. Uh, six weeks in the bush, but one Indian fishing camp, one Indian village. Brilliant trip! Wow, oh my oh. god, it sounds like we'll have to come back for another day and talk about just that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you started troll, yeah. What happened to your personal climbing after you started it? Where Me. were you going, and yeah, what were you doing? Um. Still climbing regularly in the, you know, Gorgarth, Cloggy, Ben Nevis, whatever. The UK, Lake District, North Wales. Um, always with local lads. And then we oh, were going 60s. I did three years, even though I was at Troll. <laughs> I wasn't really there very much in the 60s because I spent two or three years from... April to October, six months, is that six months of the like Up in uh, Romsdal, Troll Wall country, um, guiding on new routing. Because there's, there's, at the side of the Troll Wall, there's a Troll Riggan pillar, which is almost 6,000 foot. That had been climbed. But to the left of that is two more big 5,000 foot pillars. We did first ascents of both of those. And loads of what we call short routes, like 1,000 footers, 2,000, because we got so used to big walling that anything around the 1,000 foot mark was a quick afternoon out and do a new route, and we were doing it for two or three years. Uh, that's where the next few years went, yeah, in <laughs> Romsdale. Jeez, I didn't realise that. And then where did Rum come into all of it? Or Jordan, should oh, I well, say? Um, from through the, through the 70s, we were... Travelling to places like what we were going, uh, Iran and obscure places. Quite often, Egypt, Sudan, places like that. Climbing, always trying to go to places where nobody else had been. Really, uh, we did a three thousand foot wall in Iran. Did some big domes in the Sudan, and uh, in fact, we found a whole new range of mountains in Egypt. That's another interesting story, uh, and then. In eight, the winter of 80, Christmas 83, 
watching television and we saw the Lawrence of Arabia film and I just knew, I thought, nobody's climbed those bloody mountains. You know, mountains all over Wadi Rum. Wrote off to the tourism ministry. No, oh no, I wrote to the British ambassador and he said, write to the tourism ministry. The, not the Jordanian ambassador in London. Tourism ministry, no reply. I'll try the king, wrote to the king, no reply. I, and this sort of went on for a month. There was no computers and that. Uh, so I just kept writing letters and that. And eventually I wrote back to the judge. I said, look, I'm not getting anywhere to the judge. He said, I'll try this. This is the, the the name of the director at the tourism ministry. See, anyhow, we did have faxes by then. And I was at troll at work and the fax machine was behind me. And about a month later, the fax machine kicked up. And I thought, there'd be an order coming in. Looked behind me, pulled it off the fax machine. Ministry of Tourism in Jordan, we would like to invite you and your team to Wadi Rum to assess the climbing potential. Yes! <laughs> That's Got amazing. It. How and long no, did that take? Pardon? How long did it take? It took nearly six months of letter writing to get that. So, in the meanwhile, we'd gone to the Sudan and come back because I was, you know, I'd never had a reply. So, we got a month's six weeks trip out of that waiting for letters um so we went out in november 84 to run and uh eureka we're in we're in this is it alhamdulillah <laughs> yeah <laughs> so what was your first foray into wadi rum well first we arrived in rum uh minister of tours tourism was helping us we had a car and a driver and we went to the rest house which is let's backtrack a bit we arrived there there's if anybody knows rum today they'll see a big village that wasn't there there were six little houses about four four meter cube houses that's all little boxes that the king had given to the elder bedouin um Two or three other small houses, a shop and about 15 Bedouin tents. That was the village. Oh, and the fort, the old fort. The rest house was there, empty, locked up, not used. So we started to put our tent up by the side of the rest house. And this young Bedouin lad came across. Um, good looking lad, long black hair, swarthy, good classic Bedouin features. And said... Uh, what what you do? Why why are you here? And I said, well, we're thinking about climbing here, and he, he's got all this equipment with us. And he said, uh, what what are these? Friends. So they go and fit in the crack like this. He said, well, you don't. What are all these ropes for, for climbing? You you don't need them because we've climbed all these mountains. You don't. We just go and climb them. We don't have equipment with us. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Very impressed. Said, anyway, if you want to climb, you have to come and see my father. He's a sheikh out in the desert and chat with him and see what he thinks. So we went out into the desert and uh, quite a way. Couldn't see any any tent at all. We'd go down the desert and turn around the corner of the mountain. There's a big sand dune and still can't see any tent. Over the sand dune and hidden away in the back was this bait char goat hair tent. With his father, um, who welcomed us to the camp, he was Sheikh Atek, who was the father of Defalla and Sabo, all the Atek family that 
people that are actually guiding now. And uh, we explained what we wanted to do, and he said he thought it was a wonderful. He said, if it's good, we'll certainly be writing some articles about it, possibly a guidebook, and hopefully more people will come to climb. And they said, great idea, we really like it. He said, my sons will help you, they'll show you all their climbs, and um, you can drive work around with them and find the names of the mountains, blah, blah, blah. So we had maps, which are actually not bad. Difficult, they're difficult to get maps in Jordan, but the Wadi Rum maps are quite good from the 1960s, but very few names on them. So it was, and what it turned out, even some of the names were wrong. So we went round with the Falla and Thabba and the other Burma and named all the mountains. And they just showed it and said, that's one of our routes, it starts there to the top. So are you going to go with it? No, they're not coming with it. They left it to us. Sneaky. So that was fantastic. I'm so glad they didn't go with us because we had to learn, find the routes for ourselves. And they're not, they're, there's some that are touching VS. And in fact, there's the odd one with hard VS moves on. And of course, they've no climbing gear. They're, climbing, they're solo climbing on routes that can be two kilometres long with huge drops on them. Uh, so finding the way is as difficult or more difficult than the actual climbing. But once the, the trick is, we always tell everybody, learn to think like a Bedouin, thinking like an Ibex, and you'll find the way. And that's that's the trick of it. And they're wonderful. You've, I don't know if you've done it yourself or not, but they are wonderful routes. They're, for me, they're the best things in Rome. They're better than the modern climbs. So why, when you were first going there, why are they climbing? They're climbing to hunt ibex, and in fact they still do hunt ibex, although I've told them I'm not too happy about it, because <laughs> with modern weapons it's not as difficult as it was in ancestral days. I'm not sure that the ibex are going to survive the next decade or so, because they're too easily, they're not easily killed, though, that's not true, but they live there, they know what the right season, they know the right places, they've got the weapons, military-grade weapons, it's not difficult. So, but that's that's how the routes have been done. Uh, one of the routes goes has uh, inscriptions on from the Thamudic era, which is two thousand years ago, quite high up on the mountain. So those routes have been known to people for yeah up to two thousand years, maybe longer. When you first went out there, you were climbing old Bedouin routes. Um, we were climbing, yeah, we were particularly looking for Bedouin routes once we knew that they existed. And, of course, we were looking for new climbs as well. Um, one of them was, uh, we went out one day with Defalla and Saba, and they said, something to show you, and we went down the desert for about 10 miles, around the end of a mountain called Jebel Burda, and there's this huge rock arch, about a thousand feet up the mountain, Wow, on the skyline, fantastic thing. Nobody knew about it except the Bedouin. That was an obvious choice for it. We did two routes up to that, uh, one of which has now become a, Orange Sunshine, become a classic. That's a, it's a VS. Um, and then a couple of years later, Di and I, Di Taylor, my wife now, uh, found the Bedouin way up the mountain, and that must have earned a fortune for Rum Village, because it's a route that anybody can do. It's a route that most people need a guide for. It's a route that everybody needs transport for. 
and it's really popular. So that's been that for them. That was a really good day out showing us that that rock bridge. Yeah, but as I said, we also wanted to do our own new climbs. Um, there was a summit right opposite our camp that the Bedouin had said nobody had ever climbed. And we woke up every morning and you could see this what we, uh, this vanishing pillar, this pillar of rock that vanished and curled round the back of the mountain out of sight. But an obvious line, so we climbed that, uh, which was, well, it's always good to do a new route. It's a good route, uh, about touching hard VS here and there. But really good couple of days, because we spent a couple of days on it up and down, uh, four of us. So. so, I mean, we're talking a lot about the climbing and we've talked a lot about adventure you know you went out there to see what the rock was like and to see whether or not it was good for climbing was it just the climbing that appealed to you when you got there or was there more to it than that it became pretty obvious to us that we met a very nice bunch of people we'd met uh Tureg and Berber and other tribal peoples before but we'd never been welcomed into the heart of a community and that was fantastic. We were living out in the Bedouin camps, got to know loads of people. We were welcome. Come here, come over to our tent tonight and we'll have a meal and you know and so on. And that's what continues to draw us back today. Uh, we go every we go out every year to Jordan, uh, and we always spend at least t minimum of two weeks down in Wadi Rum. Sometimes we don't climb at all. We're just going from camp to camp, house to house, meeting friends and and just enjoying the community so tell me a bit about the people what do you expect to find if you go out there you know they're welcoming and they're very them. welcoming which you might initially be suspicious of because you think well, you know wherever you go people they want they're hoping to earn a bit of money from you so you wherever you go you're going to be initially a bit a bit cautious um, but I've always found them really straightforward and honest and I've been with them when they've been shocked by tourists who were sat in a Bedouin tent once with with Defala again uh, and some other friends just sat talking round the fire the kettle was on the fire chatting away and some tourists walked, walked straight up to the tent which you don't do but they wouldn't know that but not only that they came into the tent put a camera tripod up and started filming inside the tent. And of course, the Bedouin they used to have knives on them and they brought the knives round to the front so that they thought the tourists liked this and smiled at them. And then the tourists left and I said, I'm sorry about that. And they said, don't worry about it. We're not, they're just tourists. They don't, you know, they're harmless. They, they don't know better. So I said, well, if somebody, if a total stranger walked into somebody's house in England and started taking photographs, I mean, it's just unbelievable. But they they were polite and they let them do what they wanted to do and they went. And that's special. Yeah. So what what sort of relationship did you forge with them? I mean, yeah, you were, you were living in the tents with them and yeah. living with the camps, but yeah. were you ever going climbing with them? Yeah, we've climbed with not many of them actually, um, but yeah, we have climbed. We've we've done we've done one Bedouin route, or we were shown one Bedouin route by a, 
Pedro in friend of ours. That's the only time it's happened. Uh, spent a day with him in the mountains. And we've gone back and done other Bedouin routes with Bedouin friends, just for the fun of it, really. And uh, they're very, very good, very confident climbers. Uh, an example of that, uh, Sabaid, another friend of ours, uh, he said, I'm going climbing with some French lads today. They're doing a, they want to do a new route on Nazrani. Nazrani is one of the steepest, hardest mountains in Rome. Um, and he set off from the house and all they got with him <laughs> was a kettle and a harness. And the, well, they did the route, which was a 5C, a uh, thousand foot 5C. He was climbing in bare feet and he had his kettle with him and they had some water and they made tea up on the top and it's called tea on the moon. <laughs> so yeah, so barefoot climbed a five, thousand foot 5C. Amazing. For you, what happened over the next few years as you started to go to run more and more? Well, the first year we were there, we realised it was guidebook potential. It was going to be good. Um, we got permission off the... Well, we mentioned to the tourism minister we needed to do a guidebook. We're going to have to come back. Would they, would they care to... Because they paid for our flights as well the first year. So they paid for our flights for two or three years and provided transport. Um uh, one year we invited guides out from around Europe and we were guiding guides, which was a laugh because they were all good lads. Um, so obviously they would bring clients. So that was all sponsored as well. Um, so that's basically every, for the first three or four years, we were focused on guidebook writing and writing articles and introducing the area to the public. Strangely, the French always went for it in a big way. English have always been in the minority out there. And it's weird because it's perfect for trad climbing in the climbers. And I mean, the French are trad climbing as well. But I thought instantly this would be a big deal over here. And it's always been popular, but it's never been a big deal. Can you tell me a bit about the trekking? You did the long multi-day treks and how did, did that come uh, about? We by, so we first went to Rome in 84. Um, in 85, when Wilfred Colonna came with us, the French guide, um, we cut, in 84, when we went down to Rome, we went down the King's Highway, which is an ancient route down the edge of the Rift Valley, past Petra. But it also passed uh, a really old village called Dana, which is about 20, 30 miles north of Petra, with a fantastic looking valley going down it with sandstone cliffs. So I thought, we'll go to Dana, trek down the Dana Valley, head down the Rift Valley, which is down below sea level, and then come up the canyon. We didn't know what it was, but we knew there was a canyon that came up into Petra that every time it rains in Petra, obviously, the water has to go out and it went down this canyon. So we'll trek down Wadi Dana, and we found this canyon, and we're in... <laughs> We got there's a little village at the bottom, and we said, they said, Where are you going? I said, We're going to walk up into no, you can't do that. And anyway, it's not that we're not letting you. And they said, Well, no, no, it's a bit well, we are, right? we don't need no, you have to have a guide. No, we don't. So we had this debate about it, and then finally they said, No, you can go without you can go without a guide. And we went and camped up at the entrance to the canyon, and then a couple of hours later, a load of Bedouin turned up with guns. I said, What are you doing here? What are you doing here? 
we're, we're trekking. You're Israelis? No, no, not Israelis. We haven't come across the Rift Valley. We're from the tourism ministry. So, so yeah, okay, you're from the. T okay, you can go on your own. So we had a really good trek up through this canyon with a, a V-diff climbing pitch up the side of a waterfall into Petra. Uh, and then a couple of years after that, uh, whilst we're down in Rome again, Di and I decided to... Uh, the King's Highway crosses the Mujib Gorge, which is a 30-mile a long canyon down to the Dead Sea. It starts at 5,000 feet above sea level. Or 1500 meters and ends up, is it 500 meters below sea level, the Dead Sea, something like that? It's a really good canyon trip, and everybody said it's impossible. So, <laughs> how can you resist that? <laughs> so, we, went, we took us uh, two days down the two, two, went down half a day, camped another day, camped, came out the next day. And we knew there was no road down there. The road hadn't been built, but we knew we hoped it was being built and that we'd be able to get out. Anyhow, when we got out, the road builders were there down by the Dead Sea with with an army uh, patrol. And they said, what are you doing here? Where have you come from? So we oh, we've come from the King's Highway. We've just walked down, come down the canyon. No, it's impossible. To, well, no, it's not. We're here. No, you're Israelis. No, we're not Israelis. We haven't swum across the Dead Sea. So I then gave them the tourism ministry phone number and they phoned up and gave us clearance to take us out to the main road. Uh, and then every year we started exploring further in Jordan, partly looking for climbs, climbing areas, found some in the north. Uh, some fantastic trekking areas, superb trekking, in canyon trekking. Uh, very few of them needed ropes in the Petra area, but spectacular scenery. Uh, and then we did some around the Dead Sea area, we did some in the north where we found these cliffs. And then by about 1999-2000, we realised that we could probably, looking at them, we could probably link them all together. And make a country length trail which would be about 400 miles down the country six 600 odd kilometers uh unfortunately the queen the queen queen noor had been helping us her trekking uh but she provided a car and a driver to take us to the start and pick us up at the end unfortunately by the 1990 when we had this idea for jordan trail king hussein had just died and queen noor had left it was now King Abdullah and Queen Rani, and we went back to the palace. And understandably, Queen Rani, King Abdullah was, you know, he's got a new job, busy man. Uh, and the same applied to her. She was busy and couldn't take on a new project. Uh, so we sort of beavered away bit by bit, doing an odd route now and again each year, but slowly putting it together, but still masses to do. And then we met a lad in Palestine called Mark Carnor who just created a thing called the Nativity Trail and asked us to do a guidebook for it, which we did. And then we mentioned this Jordan Trail idea to him and he got it straight away. The tourism ministry in Jordan weren't interested back then. The climbing stuff had been done, that was it. They'd forgotten about adventure tourism. So with Mark from 1999, we suddenly started putting it together. And then by, when we got into 2003-4-5 other Jordanians had discovered through our guidebooks they said they said 
One lad said, uh, your guy, Brooks, gave us the love of our country. Fantastic. I mean, what a nice compliment can you get? Because nobody went, nobody did anything in Jordan prior to that. So they got our guy, Brooks, they started climbing and trekking. And then a few of them joined with us. And over the past four or five years, we put the whole thing together, finished it off. Last year, they formed the Jordan Trail Association. And last year, they did the initial inaugural through walk which they invited us to as guests kind of um uh and here we are it's done and it's just received an award from the king it's the national geographic in the top 20 treks in the world or something like that so we weren't wasting our time <laughs> it's nice to have done something that people appreciate you know yeah you must be chuffed to bits yeah yeah it's how how many years of work in total, uh, well, I started climbing in 53, 63, 73, 83, 93, 2000, 2030, 65 years I've been climbing and trekking. It's a job well done then. <laughs> so what's changed, do you think, from when you were first going out there to the present day in terms of not just for tourists, but for the Bedouin, for the people that live in Wadi Rum, what's changed uh, massive changes. Incre the change is coming fast. Uh, nothing much changed for the first 10 years. Then uh, it was increasing tourism, increasing money. The village, they got more vehicles, better vehicles instead of beat up Jeeps. Um, the village started to grow and grow fast. Uh, tourism started to grow, not just climbing and adventure tourism, but general tourism and uh, Wadirum itself the village and the valley around it now and, and the tourist hotspots where the sort of Thermodic rock art is and things and the Birder Rock Bridge things you can look at as a tourist those areas are now increasingly busy and we try and spend as little time as possible there because it's not the Wadi Rum we remember. We're, our Wadi Rum is 10 miles out. Even the new Bedouin, some of the new Bedouin camps, originally, if you wanted to stay in a Bedouin camp, you stayed in a Bedouin camp with the Bedouin family, and it was wonderful. Now they've created Bedouin camps for tourists, and some of them are really nice. They're fine, I have no problem with them. Uh, but those have started becoming more glamorous if you like to appeal to wealthy tourists and for me they're all right but they're in the wrong place because however good the camp might be it's it's spoiling the area that it's in it's attracting too many people and it's it's to coin a phrase it's a blot on the landscape it they should be remote and hidden round out of the way places so the, the, the scenic beauty of Rome, uh, which is a World Heritage Site, shouldn't be damaged, but it is being damaged, and I get a bit disappointed about it. And the Bedouin know I'm disappointed about it, but I couldn't stand by and not speak about it. What do you think they think? Uh, they think the ones that are involved with these projects 
think it's manna from heaven. It's big money. Uh, and now who can blame them? Because 30 years ago, they hardly had any money. They had 50 goats and a small family and they lived in a tent. And now they live in a house and the kids go to school and they've got cars. And But having said that, <laughs> the guy who we stay with, Sabahid, said last year, he said, he said, I've got a car and I've got a TV and I've got a washing machine. He said, and I've got this, that and the other. But they all need money. And now I have to go to work and I hardly have any time to spend with my family. And I think my father was better off than I am. <laughs> He's probably onto something, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to see how it will play out. It is. It is. Do you think it's all bad, though? I mean, I don't know whether I can... Who can blame them, I suppose, is all I can say. I can't blame them. It's their home, it's their village. It's their decision. Um, all I can do is point out a different viewpoint uh, and they'll either scorn it and disregard it or they may think about it. But I can't do more than that. I mean, it's a, it's not a huge place, but it's no. it's not all been spoiled, has it? No, not at all. Uh, and people who see it now won't know what it was like 30 years ago either. <laughs> They'll think it's fantastic. It is fantastic. It, so it's just in my memory. It's something in my memory. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it. What do you think to the sport climbing that's kind of jumping up out there? Hmm. Uh, I'm glad you raised the subject. Uh, you're asking the wrong person, really, because I don't. I'm not into sport climbing. I've done some. Uh, Di is happier if she doesn't. She doesn't lead much, but she'll lead on sport climbs because she feels it's safer. It is safer, um, but it's not as adventurous. Uh, and I'm a big believer in respect the rock. So. All our climbing in Rome, all our new routes every year, we've tried to, to eat on the troll wall. We've tried to avoid the use of bolts. Just occasionally, we've been forced to use them. And uh, an example I always mention is a route called Pillar of Wisdom, straight above the village. It's a thousand foot VS, but the crux is the last pitch, which is a full rope length. There's no runners on it, and it has some 5B, 5C moves. And we put three, there weren't bolts, they were, we drilled a hole and hammered an oversized peg in and they worked very well. Um, so we put three in upon the last pitch. So I've put bolts in, not happy about it, but that route is one of the most popular climbs in Wadi Rum. It's a really nice climb. Nowadays what's happening in Rum is that sports climbs are being created. There's been some created on the bottom of Jebel Rum's east face, which is just behind the village and the campsite. And it's got some good classic trad routes on. And now there's two or three sport climbs on the same wall. And there's some short single pitch, lower off sport climbs on the same wall. Personally, I don't like them. Even if the new 1,000 foot, 1,500 foot sport climbs there it sort of detracts in a way for me from the trad routes i mean one of the reassuring things is that um it'd be really difficult to bolt a 2000 meter bedouin route that <laughs> finds its way there through. were two bolts 
put in the descent from the summit of Jebel Rum. In Hamad's route. Yeah. Yeah, I came down, it was... Are they, are they there again? Yeah, they are, yeah. They've been removed once, they're back again. This was a few years ago. I mean, we've put bolts in the abseils. One set of bolts on Hamad's route for the abseil we put in because we were abseiling off a tree. And it was pretty obvious that if a thousand people abseiled off that tree, it was going to be killed or come out. So we've put abseil bolts in quite a few places. Um, mostly with a lad called Wilfred Colonna, French guide who I met in Morocco the year before we first went to Rome. And the year after we asked him to come out, and he's been out every year since as well. Um, so he was. we put Wilfred in charge of the bolting because he'd done more of it than us. But we bolted quite a few upsell routes, yeah, which is common sense to me. If you heard someone was going out there for the first time, mm. maybe they wanted to do a little bit of climbing, a little yeah. bit of trekking, yeah. what would you encourage them to do? I'd encourage, first, I'd definitely encourage them, even if they were good climbers, to, to meet up with a, a local Bedouin guide. Um, and there's, there's quite a lot of them. Um, and most of them are reasonable and some are excellent. And get into the local community. Don't just go to climb the hardest routes or whatever your objective might be. Definitely do at least one Bedouin route because that'll, apart from it, if you can't, if you don't know where Hamad's route is, you're not. <laughs> you may get up, you climb fast, but you won't come down again. You'll get lost, and you'll blame it on my guide, probably. <laughs> but talking about that guide, I didn't want to give a step-by-step -step description for Bedouin. The, the essence and the beauty of a Bedouin route is finding it. So I've tried to give sufficient clues and a reasonable topo, but still hint at it rather than give precise detail, because that's the joy of the Bedouin route. Um, so definitely do a Bedouin route, get to know the local people, and then go out and do some good routes at the climb, you know, the standard you can do. Well, um, I think we'll leave it there. Okay. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank good. you very much. Pleasure. Always good to talk about Jordan. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. Terra Incognita is produced by Coldhouse in association with Sidetrack magazine. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced by Pip Saunders and Tom Carr Griffin. We're really interested in what you have to say, and if you'd like to suggest a contributor, please email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.